I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan, web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. The concept of a zero-sum game is applied widely and often inaccurately. For example, generations of economics professors, myself included, have tried to disabuse students of the notion that in international trade, if one side in a transaction wins, the other side necessarily loses. This effort has become a bit more difficult with the rise of China, a country that has been portrayed as the chief competitor to the United States in the 21st century. We need to concede that even with the benefits of voluntary exchange, there are remaining issues around the ways in which China produces and sells its exports. Another more recent example of the misuse of the zero-sum game has to do with the production and deployment of vaccines. Hoarding vaccines for your own citizens, since one less inoculation abroad means one more at home, ignores the consequences of the worldwide nature of the pandemic and the risk of its international transmission. To discuss both of these issues, the economic role of China and the international deployment of COVID-19 vaccines, I'm very pleased to welcome to Econofact Chats, Chad Bound of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Chad is widely recognized as an expert on international trade, and he's one of the most cited economists in the popular press on this issue. Chad has also been writing on international considerations for vaccine production and deployment, for example, with two recent articles in Foreign Affairs. I'd also like to mention by way of introduction that Chad co-hosts a terrific podcast series, Trade Talks, with Somaya Keynes of The Economist magazine. Chad, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. Chad, the rise of China is one of the biggest economic stories of the past 30 years, and perhaps of the post-World War II era. What was the significance for China and for the rest of the world for its deeper integration into the world trading system? I think that the story of China's integration is is just as you said. It's probably one of the most important phenomena, uh, you know, in globalization of the last 30, 40 years. So, starting in the in the late 1970s, uh, China essentially went from an economy that was, you know, for the most part autarkic, uh, basically just relying on itself for whatever it wanted to, to to consume. It had to produce itself, and it began at that stage uh, a process of opening up to the world. And in the intervening decades, it has done so successfully. But primarily, the, the main result of that, I think, is one of tremendous human accomplishment. They have lifted hundreds and hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and become part of a global economy. So it's a huge success story. Obviously, along the way, the rest of the world accommodating, sort of letting China in has has led to major adjustments as China has taken over some things and become a big player in, in certain things. So it's been, I think, a huge success for the Chinese people and a huge success for the world, but it hasn't come without its adjustment costs 
uh, elsewhere as well. Well, along with being a big exporter, China, with a billion people and a rising standard of living, is an important importer as well. In fact, how important is the Chinese market for goods and services from the rest of the world, and maybe in particular from the United States? I think that's a that's an often overlooked point. For many countries around the world, China is you know their top or their second or their third top trading partner. That includes for for those on own countries' exports. For the United States, I think China is now our our third largest export market after Canada and Mexico. It's a really really important market for American farmers, um, soybeans and and lots of other crops. You know, include China as the, as the top destination, sending tens of billions of dollars worth of exports each year. As a growing economy, it's, you know, it's it's getting richer, it has a, a growing middle class. It's increasingly able to afford the types of sophisticated manufactured products and, and services that that American companies are are, you know, well known to, to export. So it's not only an important market, but also as an emerging economy that's still growing, it's an increasingly important market, I think, not only for the United States, but for lots of countries around the world. Going back, Chad, to the zero-sum game formulation that I mentioned in the introduction, and as you mentioned, even if trade helps in the aggregate, some people can be hurt by the disruptions of the introduction of a major player in the world stage. People have called this the China shock, and it's been blamed for destroying jobs and the community centered on manufacturing industries in places in the United States that had to contend with low-wage competition from China. What's your view of the role of China in the decline of manufacturing employment in the United States? I think China has played an important role, a significant role, but probably, you know, in terms of the public discourse, an overstated role. So people lose their jobs in the United States and anywhere for you know one of a number of reasons. What this China shock, quote unquote, evidence that's come out of the economic research literature has shown kind of for the first time over the last eight or 10 years, that, that international trade plays perhaps a larger role than we had thought, or than perhaps it had played in earlier generations of research. So kind of identifying that amongst economists was, was very, very important. But what they've also identified is it's you know sort of only one of a number of factors, and probably not the most important one of all of those factors. Other factors include things like automation and computerization and robots and kind of new technologies that have made it less necessary to have especially low-skilled labor in the United States to produce certain types of things. Also, there's the role of changing demand. You know, Americans want to consume, you know, less of certain types of products and more of other types, and, and that, you know, can cause shifts in, in manufacturing employment as well. And I guess the sort of last point I would make on this, when it comes to the China shock, is what the counterfactual is that, that people have in mind. So yes, China was becoming a larger part of the global economy during this time period, and a lot of manufacturing moves to China, but it's not as if China was the only country to be doing so. You know, you also had Mexico, Vietnam, lots of other emerging economies coming online at the same time. And if all this manufacturing hadn't moved to China, it might have just ended up somewhere else, you know, outside of the United States anyway. So I don't think we should overstate necessarily the role of China in in this. And I guess the the last point I would make on this too is even when you speak to and listen to the economists that have done the underlying research here, the one thing that they'll be 
the first ones to, to, to point out and reiterate is what the right policy response to this. So yes, there have been you know, losses to American jobs in manufacturing and communities that have suffered. But the right policy response to that isn't necessarily, let's stop trading with China or with the world. Let's do more to help those types of communities adjust. So whether that's worker retraining, education, making healthcare, pensions more portable to make it easier for, for people to be able to move. I think those are the types of domestic policies that are needed and have been lacking in the United States to deal with the kinds of the shocks that have arisen, including that from, from China. I think that point about, if not China, maybe Mexico or Vietnam is a really good point and one that's really overlooked. And also your answer very much aligns with the answer that Paul Krugman gave me in a podcast that we did a few weeks ago about globalization being one thing, but maybe not by any means the most important. But nonetheless, there are real concerns about China and the world market. And one of these has to do with labor and environmental standards, or rather the lack of them in China. An extreme example, of course, is the allegation that Chinese firms used forced labor. But even beyond this, there are concerns about the working conditions for Chinese employees who are in the manufacturing sector. So I, I think when, when we think about the labor issue, and with, with a country like China, there's maybe three different types of concerns that one might have, some of which we might need to be worried about and, and others that we don't. So one is that China has you know, relatively lower wage workers, um, but that's for economic reasons. You know, they have less education. They have less access to the machineries and the equipment needed to be able to produce goods. And as a result, they're paid less. That's not something we should necessarily be worried about. It's also something that's been changing over time. As, as Chinese workers have attained more skills and more education, their wages have been growing. The ones that we probably need to worry about are like the following. If at the same time, some of the result of the low wages is because of wage suppression, the inability of workers to be able to you know, unionize, collectively bargain, represent themselves because the Chinese Communist Party or the government more generally is, is oppressing them, then that is a separate concern, right? And that's something that, that we need to be worried about. And then finally, I guess the, the last one that may be somewhat specific to the, the current Chinese context and debate is concerns over forced labor and some of those that are arising in one particular region of the country, uh, the Xinjiang region, where China has reportedly adopted a number of very strict policies toward the minority Muslim population, the Uyghur population there, where it's you know forced them into retraining programs, detention facilities, re-education programs. And then after that, forced them essentially into certain types of work that they might not have voluntarily themselves chosen to go into. And as a response, the United States, starting you know essentially last year, began to impose import bans on certain products coming in from that region, cotton products, products that are, that are made using tomatoes that were reportedly produced using this type of forced labor. So I think this is a concern and governments are kind of waking up to this concern and beginning to implement policies to try to address it. A second concern, Chad, has to do with the appropriation of intellectual property, either covertly or through rules that the Chinese government has put in place that force companies to share technology in, for example, joint ventures if they want access to the Chinese market. 
What do you think about this concern? So this is definitely one of the big concerns that the last U.S. administration had and was forming the basis for all the tariffs that they imposed on China and ultimately the trade war. I think stepping back from that, this is kind of a longer standing issue in, in development economics. You know, how you actually, if you, you know, if you think about China not as a strategic competitor or something like that, but just think about it as an emerging economy in the following way. China's worried about getting access to not only foreign technology, but also helping its citizens learn how to use that so that they can become more productive, so that their economy continue to grow, so that their workers can earn higher wages. It's really worried about you know, what has become known as the, the middle income trap. And it had a very creative set of policies in place to help transfer this technology. So the ideas of foreign companies, you know, the, the, the story is essentially they would have relatively high tariff barriers in certain products, meaning it was difficult to export those, say, from the United States or Europe or Japan into the Chinese market. If you wanted to sell them to China's 1.4 billion consumers, you would have to set up a physical plant located in China. But in order to do that, China might want you to form a joint venture with a local partner, and sometimes that partner was a state-owned enterprise. And the concern was that over time, the partner would either learn how to make the good by themselves or otherwise appropriate the, the technology. And so maybe four or five years later, they don't need the original Western company. They don't need the American or the Japanese or, or German company. They can just do it themselves. And so then you would be ultimately losing your technology. And this was part of, I think, one of the sets of circumstances which ultimately led the last U.S. administration to impose all of those tariffs during the trade war. A third concern, and the last one I'll mention today, Chad, is that companies in China are unfairly aided by their government subsidies. And this includes not only direct subsidies, but also indirectly through cheap finance, through government-run banks and cheap energy by government-run energy providers. What about this concern? So this is another really, really big one. And this gets to the issue of some of the incompatibilities, potentially, between market economies, like what we have in the United States, Europe, again, you know, Japan, more sort of Western economies, and the Chinese system where you have state-owned enterprises, which you know, may not be forced to operate under the same sort of profit-maximizing conditions, say. You know, and so, you know, why might this matter? Um, there's a number of different reasons, but one is, you know, suppose there's a negative economic shock experienced by the whole world, you know, and you would expect all firms in in countries around the world to have to respond to that equally, cutting back their production, laying off some workers, so that everybody has to bear upfront of the costs. Well, if under the Chinese system, they're state-owned enterprises, these aren't private firms, they're less at risk of going bankrupt. They can rely on, on the Chinese government to subsidize them. That they, they don't have to necessarily lay off workers. They can kind of keep employing people, and they don't absorb necessarily their fair share of, of these bad economic shocks. And so there's, I think, this question out there in the trading system now, which is when you have a major player like China that is a non-market economy, is it still feasible to have you know, the same kind of trading rules that we've had running the system for the last 70 plus years in place? Or do you need new rules? And this is one of the debates that I think is taking place right now as we think about how to accommodate China and China's system in with the, you know, the more established players out there in the trading system.
So let's shift gears a little bit at this point. The zero-sum game analogy, as I said, is not really necessarily so good for thinking about China. But also, as I mentioned, it, maybe it's not such a good way to think about the production and deployment of vaccines. Today, there seems to be a need for cooperation among countries in fighting COVID-19. The rapid discovery of vaccines is truly remarkable, and it's a testament to human ingenuity and recent advances in science. The key challenge that remains is that the vaccines, while having been developed, need to be produced and deployed. You've written, as I mentioned, some articles in Foreign Affairs about this. What are some of the key issues? So I think the first one is just to highlight the exact point that you you led with, which is this one that, you know, nobody is safe until everybody's is safe. This is a global pandemic, and it's not as if we can wall ourselves off and say, okay, China, you go live on this part of the planet. We'll live in this part of the planet, and we don't have to interact with each other. Nope, these viruses can spread. And so we have to deal with the health consequences everywhere through through cooperation. Now, when it comes to the process of getting vaccines out to the world, which seems to be the, the main way in which we're going to get ourselves out of this pandemic, it's really, really tricky because vaccines are unlike you know, any other pharmaceutical product and that they're extraordinarily challenging to develop in the first place. So it's amazing that scientists were able to invent them so quickly. But even once they have done so, what makes them unique is that they're not like a recipe that you can kind of just write down the, you know, the chemical compound and hand it to somebody and say, look, now you know everything that needs to be known. You can go off and make this yourself. No, there's only a handful of countries in the entire world with the technical capacity, the regulatory environment, and then all of the inputs necessary to be able to manufacture these things. And what that means then ultimately is the only way the world is going to get out of the crisis is through international trade. Now, luckily, the United States is one of the countries that has developed and is manufacturing these, these vaccines. China is as well. One of the concerns with the, the, the Chinese vaccines is we're a little less clear of, about their data, about their efficacy, about you know how they perform under, under certain conditions. And so there may be more hesitancy around the world for, for some folks to take up those particular vaccines. But the point is, you know, they're two of the very few countries around the world that are ultimately going to be the ones on which we're reliant for manufacturing. But then that also means they kind of can't hoard these things themselves. Right now here in the United States, we're not actually exporting the vaccines that we manufacture. We're all desperate for them. I, I understand that, but we're keeping them ourselves. And I think ultimately to get out of this, as the pandemic continues and you have more you know, variants of the virus that are, that are coming online, we're going to have to figure out how to vaccinate the world sooner rather than later. So you're arguing against what some people call vaccine nationalism, where you're prioritizing one's own citizens and putting them at the head of the line for vaccination. And you're doing this by describing that we're all in this together. What are some insights from economics and perhaps international trade in particular that help us understand this issue, vaccination and its production and deployment and the general worldwide health concerns about it? So, I mean, another particularly 
kind of quirky element of vaccine manufacturing that, that's interesting is it involves supply chains. So it, it's a very fragmented industry. I mean, I, as I've researched this, what I've learned is kind of people have in mind the big global giant pharmaceutical company, right? It's kind of doing everything start to finish and they're the big behemoth in the, in the, you know, out there in the world. That's not really how this, this world works. You have these biotechs that are the ones that have invented the vaccine. And with the exception of Pfizer, say, which you know itself didn't invent the vaccine that they're manufacturing. They have a licensing agreement with BioNTech, this this German biotech firm, for, for their vaccine. Basically, all the rest of them, these these biotechs, have then partnered up with smaller contract manufacturers to be able to do the manufacturing, to do the last step of the manufacturing, which is to put the vaccine ultimately into vials and to you know have it for distribution this is called the, the the fill and finish stage so much like many industries around the world you don't have these kind of big vertically integrated firms anymore you have lots and lots of players in a supply chain and outside of say the United States a lot of this is going to be happening across borders so you might have one firm you know that's in charge of developing, say, and, and manufacturing the antigen. But then it goes to a different country where it's going to be needed to you know, put it into the vials. And you're going to have to get those vials and the needles and you know, the syringes from a third country. So all of this to say is globalization and cross-border supply chains, uh, I think, are going to be part and parcel for how it is that ultimately we're going to scale up manufacturing to be able to get us out of the pandemic, at least on the health side. So one solution that people are considering, and in fact, are trying to put into place is cooperative agreements that are enforceable. COVAX, for example. What is COVAX and how does it work? And is it, in fact, working the way people have been hoping that it would work? So COVAX is an arrangement that began very early on in the pandemic between the World Health Organization. So you can think about them as kind of seg- setting the regulatory environment for the public health side. You know, this is what we need to be able to qualify for being having an acceptable vaccine. These are kind of the scientific hurdles that you have to go through. Yes, we have this in the United States through the FDA. Yes, you have it in Europe, but this is kind of the, the global uh, overseer regulator for that. You have CEPI, which is an organization that tried to help facilitate both the development of vaccines initially and then their manufacture. So it worked with universities and researchers and some of these smaller biotech firms, and then some of the ultimate manufacturers in in kind of a matchmaking process to, to come up with a diverse portfolio of vaccines. Again, remember back, you know, a year ago at this time, we had no idea if any of these vaccine candidates, and there were, you know, 100 and 200 that have kind of been trying to make it along the way. And, you know, we now have four or five or six or so that are accepted or or very close. So many of them failed. They developed a portfolio of potential vaccines, hoping some of them would succeed. Some of them did succeed. And they're helping now to try to facilitate the the manufacturing. And then you have the third leg, this this organization called Gavi, the, the Vaccine Alliance. And they're really trying to work on the distribution getting an equitable distribution and funding, especially for poor countries around the world that you know wouldn't otherwise, given their own resources, be able to, they certainly can't produce it themselves, but probably buy all the, all the vaccines that they would need for their populations as well. And so they have worked together to try to come up with this cooperative system of uh, you know, matching the ideas with the producers, with the regulators, and on the demand side, with all of the countries that are going to need these things, 
but they've kind of run into some problems because while the framework is there, they haven't actually been given the vaccines. So, you know, in, a, in many respects, the countries in which these things are being manufactured, the United States or the European countries, because we're largely keeping them for ourselves, we're not turning them over to this, this global effort, this global body that might allow them to be allocated around the world to help put out the pandemic everywhere. So while it's a great idea in theory and it's waiting to be taken up, the big players in the world community really haven't grabbed it with both hands yet. Chad, thanks for drawing these parallels between issues in international trade and issues having to do with vaccine production and deployment. And one clear parallel is both of these are using lots of acronyms. So that you know is something that I guess came naturally to you as a trade economist as you started to study vaccines. Absolutely. Um, uh, if, if you want to go into the area of international anything, and when it comes to policy, um, get used to the acronyms, I guess, is the story. I'll say TYVM. Thank you very much <laughs> for joining me today. It was a really interesting and informative conversation. Thanks for having me. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact, and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.